Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 5 through 18. If you're reading a pew Bible, that is in the 74th page of the New Testament. So again, John, chapter 5, verses 5 through 18. Hear now the word of God. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus and sought to kill him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, as always, our greatest desire is that you would cause your name to be hallowed in the earth. Or that you would lift up the holiness of your name in this world so that your people might behold and rejoice, that the lost might be confronted and converted that sin would be destroyed, that the works of the devil would vanish. As we just sang, that darkness would continue to flee away before the presentation of your holy light. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Son. And the salvation and the hope that we have by your promise and by his work Lord, we have sinned in so many ways against you this last week. Some of them we are very aware of, even now in this moment. Where we've turned our backs on you. We've not held true to our confession of faith. We've indulged the flesh. We have refused or neglected to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. Lord, we confess ourselves guilty in your presence. But we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ that through the blood and righteousness of Jesus, we have nothing to fear from you, Lord. We, we have only to receive the promise and the hope that if we confess our sins, 
You are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and then to cleanse us through the blood of your Son of all our unrighteousness. Thank you for such a promise. We don't want to uh, think lightly of the guilt we feel when we do sin against you, Lord, but we don't want to let our guilt drive us away from Christ. So please lift him high before us today. We pray for your spirit to work among us. You would make your presence known here in a very uh, real way so that even if there are some who are unbelievers among us today, that they themselves would have to confess that surely God is in this place. Lord, we ask that you bless our worship this morning as we lift it high and lift it up to you. Be with us now as we come to your word. Lord, open our ears that we might hear. Soften our hearts so that we would receive. Bend our wills to your will. And help us go on our way rejoicing in the good hope that's ours in Christ. Lord, we ask for these blessings in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, today, again, we are uh, continuing our crawl through John chapter 5, and uh, we're joking around. I think Bill and I were joking around last night at the wedding with someone that uh, will probably be out of the Gospel of John in 20 years or so, and uh, maybe, maybe when Bill goes to glory, we'll finally, finally be done. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we are looking at the issue of Jesus and the Sabbath in John chapter 5. And um, we're going to continue looking at that today, and then we're going to follow up on issues relating to the Sabbath next week. And I just want to give a preliminary comment uh, uh, in relation to what's going to happen next week. Um, I know that talking about the Sabbath day and its abiding relevance for the church today is controversial, to say the least. Uh, when you get a comment on, we get no comments on our YouTube channel, okay? Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge's YouTube channel. We get zero comments. But we had one last week that said, go worship your Sabbath. You know, it's like, like we're worshiping the Sabbath. But uh, it's a controversial issue. And I don't want to deny the fact, I don't want to ignore the reality that most people think that the Sabbath has no abiding relevance for Christians today. I, I recognize that. And I know that in light of the various teachings that we've all sat under or at least been exposed to in regard to the Sabbath, uh, this winds up being a very controversial matter. Um, and truly, I, I want to make sure that everyone understands, as we talk through this issue, I want to make sure that everyone understands what I'm saying and what I'm not saying when it comes to honoring the Lord by keeping his Sabbath. Um, I, I, I think that you really need to understand that in light of how controversial this topic is, it's important to know that my position on this matter is in line with 1,900 years of church history. Um, and it's only been in the last 100 years that ignoring the Sabbath day has become commonplace. And, and, and many of you recognize the, the fruit of that. You, I remember as a kid, I remember stores being closed on Sundays. 
right? And I remember there being a different attitude and atmosphere, culturally speaking, whenever it came to what took place and what didn't take place on a Sunday. Well, where did that come from? That didn't just develop out of uh, Americanism. That was, that was influenced and shaped by the impact of the church on our society and, and, and church history as well. So my position is not some new fad that I, I just created on my own, that I'm presenting to you guys. I'm presenting to you what the majority of church history has been in line with over the last 2,000 years. And um, it's unfortunate that it has to be so controversial in our day. But Satan is always on the attack as we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. So I want to, I want to lay out my plan for, the next, uh, for next week's message. Uh, my plan is to address a number of questions that have been asked about the Sabbath. Uh, and these questions are reworded in my own words. So if you sent this question in to me and it's not worded exactly the way you sent it, uh, don't stress about that. Uh, these are in my words. Um, but I've got four of them so far that I'm going to be addressing next week. Number one, where do we see the transition from the seventh day Sabbath to the Lord's day Sabbath in the scriptures? Where do we see in scripture that the Sabbath changed from the seventh day to the first day, in other words? And does that mean that the Lord's day should be treated like a Sabbath? Those are related. Number two, what about Paul's statements that seem to say that the Sabbath is no more? For example, in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, or Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, or Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, Pastor Seth, did you not know those verses were in the Bible? <laughs> that wasn't part of the question. No, I, I know those verses are in the Bible, and, and I will explain next week what those verses are talking about. Um, number three. What does it look like to observe, honor, and keep the Lord's day? What does it actually look like for a Christian to honor the Lord on his day? And you've got to recognize something. When we say Sunday is the Lord's day, that means that Sunday very uniquely is possessed by the Lord. It belongs to him in a very unique manner. So when we say the Lord's day, doesn't that automatically imply that there's some way that we ought to conduct ourselves on that day that is in reference to the Lord to whom that day belongs. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll talk about that next week. What does it look like to observe, honor, and keep the Lord's day? And then number four, what about times when a person is required to work on Sundays? Is that person guilty of not observing the Lord's day? Are they sinning? We'll talk about those next week, okay? Yeah, my plan is to go through those, and I will answer them according to the level of understanding that God has granted me in his word at the moment. Maybe I don't see everything the way I ought to, but I trust in the Lord to continue leading me to greater and greater light and understanding. But if you have any questions that are, that are not represented by one of those four questions and you want me to deal with it, please get that into me. But I need you to get that into me prior to Wednesday so that I have time to work on it, okay? So if you have a question, email me. Make sure you get it to me before Wednesday. All right. Now for today's message. Now last week we, we began to look at the issue of the Sabbath in relation to John chapter 5. You know the scene. Jesus here heals a man in Jerusalem while there is a celebration of one of the feasts taking place. And verse 9 makes very clear that Jesus chose to heal this man on the Sabbath day. 
Now, it's important to realize Jesus could have healed this man on another day. (laughs) He could have come that Friday and healed the man before sundown. He could have come uh, on the first day of the week and healed that man. That man probably would have been laying there still. So why did Jesus choose the Sabbath to heal this man? Well, we will get into that as the message goes on. But one thing that this does do, Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, is it exposes Jesus to the charge of the Jews that he was guilty of breaking the Sabbath and therefore, according to God's law, was worthy of death. That's why they were seeking to kill him. Now, as I mentioned last week, this brings up an important question that needs to be answered. Were the Jews right in asserting that Jesus had indeed broken the Sabbath? Were they right in saying that Jesus had violated the Sabbath day? That was the substance of their charge against him. We see that clearly in verse 16. Right? They were persecuting him and they were even seeking to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, we mentioned last week that there are some who do agree with the Jews on this issue and say that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, and we talked about why that cannot be the case, that cannot be the position that we as Christians take when it comes to what Jesus did and did not do on the Sabbath day. He could not have broken the Sabbath because that would make him a what? A sinner. That would make him a lawbreaker. That would make the the holy Son of God one who actually rebelled against the clear commandments of his Father. That means that he is not worthy to be our Savior and we should not put our trust in him. That means he's not able to save us from our sins against God because he himself has his own sins to deal with. Right? Now we started looking last week at three reasons why Jesus was not breaking the law of God on the Sabbath. And basically we were evaluating or looking at three principles in regard to the Sabbath that God teaches us in the Old Testament. I just want to run through those for the sake of coherence uh, with today's message, just to remind us all of what we've looked at. Uh, The first principle we looked at was from Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, where God reveals to us that the Sabbath was a creation ordinance, meaning it was something that was instituted at the beginning of creation. It was not something that was instituted for the first time under Moses. It was not something that was strictly instituted for the Israelites. This was a day that the Lord himself observed and then blessed and sanctified for his image bearers to observe. Okay? We looked at that last week. This is why, for, uh, by the way, this is why in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus clearly says the Sabbath was not, uh, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That's what Jesus is talking about. And you've got to pay attention to what he doesn't say there. Jesus does not say the Sabbath was established under the law of Moses. Nor does Jesus say the Sabbath was instituted for the Israelites. Jesus says very generically and plainly, the Sabbath day was instituted for man. The Sabbath day was instituted for mankind. Just so, so as we saw last week, just like work was instituted for man in Genesis chapter 2. And just like the institution of marriage was instituted for man in Genesis chapter 2. Amen, Jones family? It's a wonderful time yesterday. So also the Sabbath was instituted for man. And so when Jesus as the perfect God-man heals this man on the Sabbath, he was not breaking the Sabbath. 
He's the one who came to restore creation to the will of his Father. Therefore, he was not the one who was guilty of violating the Sabbath day. Now, secondly, we saw the purpose of the Sabbath day last week. The purpose of the Sabbath day from the beginning was rest and worship, right? Resting from your normal activities so that you could give yourself wholeheartedly and undistractedly to worshiping and communing with the Lord. In order to enjoy the freedom from the norm on the Sabbath day, we were to rest from everything that occupies us and preoccupies us on the other six days of the week so that we might give ourselves wholly to the Lord God and worship on his day. That's what the Sabbath day was all about. And, uh, and then finally, thirdly, the third principle we, we need to understand as we work through this issue of the Sabbath and whether Jesus actually broke the Sabbath is the reality that God teaches us in the Old Testament that work that is necessary for the worship of God on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath. Work that is necessary for worshiping God on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath. And we looked at the priests under, under that, the way the priest had to work under the Old Covenant. Their work actually doubled on the Sabbath day. They had to offer more sacrifices. They had to bake bread. They had to rearrange that bread on the altar in the, in the tabernacle before the Lord. And so it is here in John chapter 5, Jesus healed the man here in John 5 in order to bring glory to his father and in order to increase the praise of his father's name. Now, was the healing that Jesus performed a work? Was that a work that Jesus did? Yes, it was. But what was the purpose of that work? That's what's going to tell us whether or not it was a violation of the Sabbath. Was it for the sake of profit? Was it for the sake of continuing on with normal, regular activities that were being done in the other six days of the week? No, it wasn't that. Was it an example of Jesus telling this man to do something with no regard to God? No, that's not what it was about. It was actually about worshiping God. Jesus healed this man from an illness he had for 38 years that left him invalid, left him uh, unable to, to move and to do anything and, and to enter into the corporate worship of God's people. Here, Jesus has liberated him from his bonds. What's the man supposed to do? Continue laying there as he had done for 38 years? What glory is that going to bring to the God who had just healed him in the eyes of everyone else present in Jerusalem? Yeah, Jesus healed me, but I'm still going to lay here. No, Jesus says, go, get up, rise, take up your mat, go walk around, display what I've done for you before the eyes of all. Let them glorify and worship the God who has healed you. That's what it was about. That's what that healing was about. It wasn't a violation of the Sabbath day. It was upholding the principle of what the Sabbath day is really all about, which is worshiping God and giving glory to his name. So in light of those three things, we say, no, Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. But we have a question left to answer. Why did the Jewish people believe Jesus was breaking the Sabbath? Especially when we're talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. Weren't they held up as, as those who truly understood and knew the law of God? Right? Jesus, or uh, Paul even describes himself as being one of those Pharisees who, according to the law, he was blameless. He knew what the law taught. He knew what the law said. And he kept his feet in line with what the law demanded him. Isn't that the way we view Pharisees? So what problem did they have with Jesus 
when he healed this man on the Sabbath. If we can look at the Old Testament and say, no, Jesus clearly wasn't breaking the Sabbath, what were they seeing in the Old Testament that you and I aren't seeing? Well, what we find as we examine and answer that question is that at the heart of it, and what we need to understand most principally in regard to the Jews and their position and their opposition to Jesus, is that in reality, Jesus was not the one who was guilty of breaking the Sabbath. The Jews were the ones who were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And how were they guilty of breaking the Sabbath? By misinterpreting what it means to keep the Sabbath. That's where they went wrong. By misinterpreting what it means to keep the Sabbath. When God brought Israel into a covenant relationship with himself, one of the requirements was that they would identify with him as the God of creation by observing his Sabbath day. So this actually, Exodus 31 verse 13 tells us that this was a sign of the covenant that the Lord had made with the people of Israel. This was, this was one thing that they were to observe in order to signify that they were in a saving and covenant relationship with the Lord their God, the God of creation. How were they to identify with Him and show themselves to be His people and show others that He is their God? Well, one of those ways was by observing the Sabbath day. And that's why in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, the basis for observing the Sabbath was God's own observance of the Sabbath in the beginning of creation. Remember there, it says, uh, the Lord commands his people on Mount Sinai, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on that day. Why is that? Well, verse 11, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh. And for that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. And therefore, you are to keep the Sabbath as those who are his peculiar people and those who belong to him. So it was a sign of their covenant with the Lord. Now, aside from some specific examples that we have in the Old Testament, if, if you guys know my phrases here. Have you zoned? Let's wake up a little bit, okay? Stay with me. Aside from some specific examples in the Old Testament, like not gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, not kindling a fire in your home on the Sabbath day, aside from examples like that, many of the Jewish leaders believed that there was a lot of ambiguity concerning what exactly it meant to keep or to honor God on the Sabbath day. So, for example, when the Lord says, on the seventh day you shall do no work, what exactly does that mean? I mean, it sounds pretty exclusive. No work on the Sabbath. Does that mean I can't get out of bed? on the Sabbath because I have to exercise the muscles that I have left in my abdominal area, right? And I've got to push myself up out of bed. Am I not exerting energy when I get out of bed on the Sabbath? Or when I walk down the stairs and, and as talking to Dan earlier this week, pretty much every morning I'm worried I'm going to fall down our stairs because my joints are so stiff 
And when I'm holding myself on the railing as I'm walking down those stairs and grunting and trying to be quiet, I'm exerting a lot of energy in that moment. Is that working on the Sabbath day? Eating is, is, is bringing food to my mouth. Is that an expression of work on the Sabbath? Because I'm doing an action, right? For my own benefit? Well, to try and answer that question, the Jews developed various traditions to act as guidelines or rules that would help God's people make sure that they were not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Now, these traditions started off, we need to acknowledge, with good motives. The mot- what was the motivation? We don't want to dishonor the Lord. And this is especially powerful, and, and uh, the impact of that can be, can be felt more palpably when you remember that most of these traditions were developed after the exile uh, into Babylon and Assyria. You remember one of the charges that the Lord brought against His people was that they did not keep His Sabbaths, right? That's one of the reasons they had to spend 70 years in exile was because they failed to keep the regular cycles of sabbatical years throughout their time in the Promised Land. So the Lord says, I'm going to exile you, I'm going to send you away into foreign lands, and I'm going to give my land the rest that I commanded you to give it, but you never gave. So the Sabbath was a big deal. So when the, when the exiled Jews are coming back, they're left wondering, hey, how can we make sure that we never do that again? Right? How can we make sure that we don't ever break the Sabbath again? That's a good motive. You just got in a lot of trouble with the Lord for that very sin. It seems like wisdom to come back and say, okay, let's put some fences up here. Let's make sure that we have the parameters clearly delineated so that we don't transgress that commandment anymore. You know, the problem, though, with that is when human rules start to be added to the law of God as helps and aids to our obedience, those parameters begin to get smaller and smaller and more restrictive. There's less freedom found until eventually the only way you can stay within those parameters is by standing on one tiptoe as you feel it close around that toe. That's what happens when man-made legalistic rules are added to the law of God. We'll see that in a moment. So the Jews, in order to answer this question, what is included in this idea of work? They develop these traditions. Not wanting to go through that exile again, the Jews tightened up the reins of Sabbath observance and gathered together teachings from many rabbis on what it meant to observe the Sabbath, or at least what these rabbis thought it meant to observe the Sabbath day. Now, these rules grew over time. They were expanded, they were multiplied, and eventually they were compiled and written down together in a book that we call the Talmud, which is uh, Jewish traditional writings, the the writings of uh, rabbinical writings. But in the New Testament period, we see in Mark chapter 7, verse 5, for example, that these, these rules were known as the tradition of the elders. You guys remember reading that in the Gospel accounts where uh, the Pharisees come against Jesus and they indict him for, and his disciples for not keeping the tradition of the elders. Those rules, that's what they're talking about there. Now we need to understand that the tradition of the elders were viewed by most of the Jews to be as authoritative as Scripture itself. And because of the connection between those rules and the scriptures. 
What were those rules except the, exp the, the exposition of what the law of God was telling us to do? That's what it was like in the Jewish mind. These, these are what the most learned rabbis are telling us it means to obey that commandment. How can that not be equal with Scripture? How ironic that these traditions, these guardrails that were set up to help people understand and obey the commands of God, actually came to hinder true obedience to the Lord's commands. That's what happens when man's tradition gets in the way. Matthew 15, verse 3, Jesus, in response to that very question, why do your disciples not keep the tradition of the elders? Jesus responded saying, and why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? But that was a radical statement. We don't see it as radical because we've been shaped by a new covenant gospel perspective. But in Jesus' day, he was radically countercultural in that statement. Everyone thought that the right understanding of how to keep the commandments of God were authoritatively deposited in those traditions that had been passed down to them by their elders. And yet Jesus says, actually, it's actually your traditions that have become violations of the very commandments you're seeking to protect. It's a very important principle there. Human traditions... Please listen. Human traditions, no matter how innocent or helpful they might appear to be at first, will always corrupt true worship. Human traditions will always corrupt true worship. God doesn't need the traditions of men in order to safeguard the worship of His church. And when you say that you have to adopt all of these man-made rules and principles and regulations in order to keep the law of God, guess what you've just done? You've elevated yourself and your own understanding above that which the Lord has. You've said that God's commandments are not good enough. You've got to add something to it in order for obedience to take place. God has not spoken clearly enough to us. Evidently, He can't speak clearly enough to us. We need to add these traditions so that we can obey the will of the Lord. It's not, it's not an innocent thing to add human tradition to the Word of God. It's an affront to the Lord Himself. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, it tells us that the Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be adequately equipped for every good work. Now, what's lacking in every good work? Tradition. Tradition. <laughs> That's right. Your wit, man. I love it. Yeah, what's lacking in every good work? Any good work that the Lord calls us to do, what makes us adequate to do it? It's the Word of God, not tradition, right? You don't need the traditions of man in order to understand how to worship God and how to live a life that's glorifying to Him. All you need is a true knowledge and a deep experiential familiarity with His voice speaking in the Scriptures. I chose those words purposefully. This was and this remains one of the great divides between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. For Rome, the scriptures are not sufficient. They cannot stand and they cannot speak on their own. 
because God has not spoken clearly enough in his word for his people to understand his will. So they need the help of the church. That is, they need tradition to come alongside the word in order to teach Christians what they need to know and what they need to do. Now that attitude that approaches God's spoken word saying, we need human tradition and wisdom and understanding to help us figure this out is actually a rejection of the true worship of God. And not only that, it's a rejection of the ministry of God's spirit in the lives of his people. Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, what does it tell us? What does the Holy Spirit do in the lives of believers? He gives us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of the truth. He opens the eyes. He enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we might know that which is true. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Okay. If you can come to the Scriptures and read it and be utterly lost as to what it's saying, as to the importance and the power of its message, as to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for sinners and rising again from the dead and ascending on high as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who demands obedience from everyone. If you can read the scriptures and not come away feeling the gravity of that message and not understanding what it's saying, what that means is that you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Because that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God enlightens your mind and your heart so that you see these truths for what they are and you know the power of God that is revealed in these words. You taste them. And the Spirit of the Lord takes the Word of God and drives it down into your heart and begins to do that deep heart work of of reshaping who you are, making you a new creature in Christ Jesus, conforming you more to the image of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of believers. Guess whose work that isn't? Those who develop man-made traditions. They will never, ever accomplish that work in the life of a believer. Only bring them into greater bondage. Now, just so that we don't sit around beating up on Catholics, if you want another tradition hindering true worship within Protestantism, I would just point you back to what became of fundamentalism. Many of you may not understand what I mean by that. But fundamentalism was a movement that was very zealously committed to the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God and had a true zealous commitment to the miraculous gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that was, or at least a church culture that was beginning to degrade and deny the realities of the gospel. The fundamentalists rose up and said, no, 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 no. If you let go of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you don't have the gospel anymore. No, if you let go of the inerrancy of scripture, if you let go of the reality that the spirit of God has inspired the word of God for our benefit, then you have no authoritative revelation from God anymore. God has not spoken, in other words. The fundamentalists recognized what was at stake in those battles, and they took their stand in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the word of God, and I applaud them for that. But as time went on, in order to safeguard the truth of the gospel and in order to protect what, people, uh, what it meant for people to walk by faith in that truth, 
fundamentalists began to adopt certain lifestyle traditions that were added to the understanding of what it meant to live the Christian life. So, for example, fundamentalists might say, in answer to the question, what does it mean to obey God's commands and to live for the glory of Jesus Christ? A fundamentalist might say, well, it means I don't dance. It means I don't play cards. It means I don't drink alcohol. That, that, I, I, I am a faithful follower of Christ. I don't drink beer. Now, some of us might laugh at that. But I grew up around that. You go down south and you see that everywhere. People think they're saved because they don't drink. Because they don't dance. Or, you know, one of the more silly ones. You're not really worshiping the Lord unless you wear a suit and a tie on Sunday. I wear a jacket for different reasons. I'm not being legalistic up here. You can only read out of the King James Version of the Bible. Or you, know, you can substitute that in our day for the ESV or the NASB or whatever. And whether or not any of these positions may have the appearance of wisdom, what actually happens when, the, when they are adopted? Christianity itself becomes redefined. It's no longer defined by an emphasis on the saving power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's no longer, being a Christian is no longer described as the Son of God entering into this world and uniting himself with me. It's no longer understood. The, the primary emphasis shifts from being on the Son of God giving his holy life as a substitute for sinners and rising again from the dead and ascending into heaven. The emphasis shifts off of that to what my life looks like. And the perception becomes, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't drink. I'm a Christian, so I don't smoke a pipe. I don't smoke a pipe. I just, yeah, I won't go on. I won't go on to that. <laughs> I'm a Christian, so I don't drink. I'm a Christian, therefore I don't smoke. I, I, I don't dance. I don't play cards because I'm a Christian. That's what Christians don't do. They don't do these things. And the corruption of what true Christianity looks like slips in subtly and unnoticed. Where, the Christianity, where Christianity is no longer truly and purely about Christ and the salvation that his gospel brings, it is degraded into a Christless morality in the name of Christ. One that unfortunately makes many lost sinners comfortable in their estrangement from God by holding on to this form, this empty shell of religion that has no power in it. That's what happens when you adopt man-made traditions and make them so tightly integrated and united with what the Bible has to say to us. You lose vital and substantial Christianity. And you know what happens to the church in light of that too. We're seeing that all around us today. What happens to the church when those kinds of traditions are elevated and made equal with the gospel? 
the, tr the church loses its saltiness, doesn't it? We're not salty in the world anymore. We're just some movement over there on the side that is just kind of in the way. That just, let the, just get them over there. Let them do their own thing. We can all just press on. The church is called to engage the culture and be salt and light. When we make forms the substance, human traditions, the substance of our biblical Christianity, we've lost our saltiness, and we have no light to give. So. God doesn't need our safeguards, and he doesn't need our help when it comes to obeying and understanding his, what his word has prescribed for us to do. Well, that is what Judaism in Jesus' day had done. And let me give you just an example of some of these rules that uh, the Jews had developed and the traditions that had become common practice in Jesus' day. I want to list these out for you so that you get a sense of what Jesus was combating when he was seeking to correct the Jewish misunderstanding of what the Sabbath day was all about. Among the many traditions in the Talmud, there were 24 chapters that were dedicated to the issue of the Sabbath. Now, according to Alfred Edersheim, who wrote a, a marvelous book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, according to Al Alfred Edersheim, these uh, 24 chapters made up 156 double-sided pages of instruction about what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath day. Some of them might seem at least plausible or reasonable at first sight. They have the appearance of wisdom, but the majority of these rules are some of the most ridiculous legislation you've ever heard. And let me give you some examples of that. So in order to protect obedience to the Sabbath, a person was not permitted to drag a chair across the floor or else the leg of the chair touching the floor might dig a trench and the person would be guilty of working on the Sabbath because he dug a trench. You were not permitted to throw warm water on yourself because the water may splash off of you and all over the floor and then you would be guilty of cleaning your floors on the Sabbath. You could not put wadding with oil into an infected ear on the Sabbath day, or else it might make your ear better, and you would be guilty of working on the Sabbath because your ear was being healed on the Sabbath. A person could not wear, this is, I laughed when I read this one. A person could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because those teeth might fall out, and the owner would have to either leave them there or break the Sabbath by bending over to pick them up. So, to pick up fruit from the ground was breaking the Sabbath because it was a form of harvesting. So, if fruit fell off the table and was on the ground, or maybe off of a tree was on the ground, you couldn't pick that up because it was a form of harvesting. That directly applies to the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, by the way. This one was another funny one. <clears throat> Women were forbidden from looking in a mirror on the Sabbath because they might discover a white hair and attempt to pull it out, which apparently would be a quote-unquote grievous sin against the Lord. Now, as ridiculous as these were, 
and, and are, many of the other rules were outright hypocritical. So, for example, the limits on how far a person could travel on the Sabbath and the prohibition against carrying anything on the Sabbath. So a person, according to the Talmud and the rabbinical teaching, a person was allowed to travel up to 2,000 cubits. One cubit is about a foot and a half. So you could travel up to about, what, 3,000 feet, or, uh, yeah, 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. Uh, 3,000 feet from your dwelling place on the Sabbath. So wherever the boundaries are for your property, from that point, you could go 3,000 feet before you're breaking the Sabbath. But if prior to the Sabbath, you take a basket of food and you go put it out at that 3,000 foot mark, all of a sudden you have extended the boundaries of your dwelling and it no longer applies to that portion of land. So the day before the Sabbath, what do you do if you need to travel further? You just go grab a meal and you go put it down on that final edge where you could, you could not, not go any further without breaking the Sabbath. You put it right there, and then that becomes the new beginning place from where you start tracking how far you can go on the Sabbath day. Because it's now your dwelling. See that? Or maybe if you have houses with your neighbors and you all share the same courtyard. It was according to the Talmud and the, uh, the Mishnah, the, the, the teaching on Sabbath regulation, you could not bring one uh, article from, uh, from one house to another house. You couldn't carry something out of your house and bring it into the house of another. And so these houses that maybe shared the similar courtyard, if they brought anything to that courtyard on the Sabbath day, they would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath because they would be carrying something from their dwelling place to another dwelling place. However... If all the neighbors were really smart, they would all gather together a meal for the next day, put it in a basket, and go put it in the middle of that courtyard, and then you know what that did. That made that courtyard equally all of their dwelling place. So they weren't going beyond their dwelling place on the Sabbath if they did that. You see how hypocritical that is, how arbitrary that is. There's no substance to that. And yet that's the kind of legislation, that's the kind of regulation that the Pharisees and the scribes were laying upon people and saying, if you don't keep these rules, you're breaking God's Sabbath. You are in sin against him. Oh, by the way, you're worthy of death. Isn't that what they're seeking with Jesus? This is the kind of, of misguided, though well-intentioned, lunacy that Jesus was dealing with when he confronted the scribes and Pharisees on the issue of the Sabbath. Through all their traditions and their regulations, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had gutted the Sabbath law of all its true meaning and significance. And this is what happens whenever you bring human tradition and you make it part of what it means to obey and honor the Lord. You gut all the freedom and the liberty of your relationship with God right out. You kill it. You kill the joy of, of, of walking with the Lord in holiness and, and, and in the fear of His name and with sweet communion in the Holy Spirit. You destroy all of that when you make God's expectations for you the expectations that were developed by men. See, they had replaced the substance of Sabbath obedience with a cheap filler of human thinking and innovation. They'd given a substitute obedience that subverted the Jews' ability to simply and purely enjoy the promised fellowship with God 
that he held out to those who observed his Sabbath day. You see how, you see how destructive that is to the spiritual life of God's people. These rules were not only robbing God of glory among his people, they were robbing God's people of their freedom in the Lord. And that's why Jesus over and over again hammers this issue in the Gospels. You see this come up on six separate occasions where Jesus addresses their misunderstanding of the Sabbath day. Jesus was fierce and did not hesitate to confront hypocritical traditions in order to restore in the minds of God's people what it truly means to faithfully and sincerely and worshipfully observe the Sabbath day of the Lord. And so that's what Jesus is doing here in John 5. When he chooses to heal this man, Jesus was not the one who was guilty of breaking the Sabbath. He was exposing the reality that the Jews were the ones who were guilty of breaking God's Sabbath day. Now, beloved, I want to just end on, on this encouragement, this exhortation. That Jewish regulation and all those traditions, ridiculous, right? Nonsensical. Uh, has no weight or power with us. But if you and I are not careful, we can become just as guilty of dishonoring the Lord on his sanctified day, as they were. We can either dishonor the Lord on the Lord's day by neglecting him on his day, or we can dishonor the Lord by adding arbitrary rules to what it means to honor the Lord on his day. You see that? So this is what was behind my, my corrective comment at the Lord's table last week. When after listing out all these various illustrations of what you might want to do on the Lord's day that really aren't about the Lord, they're about your own desires, right? Like football, mowing the grass, uh, taking care of the house, uh, whatever it is, right? What I'm not doing with those illustrations is trying to add or develop like a Talmud or, or Mishnah for us to follow so that we might keep the Lord's day in the church. That's, that's not what we need. We don't need legalism to follow after the Lord. What we need is a clear understanding of his word. That's all we need. What does the Lord require of you? What does he want from you? Well, on the Sabbath day, we can say at least three things that the Lord wants from us. Number one, the Lord wants us to rest. That means cease from works that are normally being done throughout the rest of the week. Okay, so, so if you are normally out cutting the grass throughout the rest of the week, well, let me, let me use a different illustration. Here's one. And I don't, I'm not always able to follow through on this, okay? But like, Jamie and I try not to go to stores on Sunday. Because by going to the store, you're supporting the system that requires people to work on Sunday. That's my conviction. I can't always keep that, but I try to keep that, right? Um, what was I getting at now? Three things, right? That's where we're at. Three things, that the rest. What does it mean to honor the Lord's Day in relation to that? Well, for us, it means that we cease from going to those stores on the Lord's Day, right? 
We, we cease from that which would be a normal work throughout the rest of the week. And we, we, we sanctify the day of the Lord for his glory and for the worship of his name. Uh, I don't cut the grass on Sundays. I try not to watch football on Sundays because I'm participating in a, in, in a, in a system that requires people to work and has nothing to do with the Lord on the Lord's day. Now, those are my convictions. I'm not trying to lay those on your conscience. What I'm saying is what we should be thinking about, the rule that needs to govern each one of us as we wrestle with God over keeping the Sabbath, the rule needs to be, Lord, what do I need to rest from today that I would normally be doing on other days during the week? Secondly, we need to ask ourselves, what activities am I doing on the Lord's day that are distracting me from the Lord? Are there any activities that I'm doing on the Lord's day that are becoming distractions from keeping my mind fixed upon the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ? And then thirdly, a third rule, what kind of acts of mercy and what kind of good works might be required of me to do on the Lord's Sabbath day? If we take those three general rules and we wrestle with God over how they apply to each one of our lives, I don't think we can go wrong. Resting from normal work, keeping from ourselves distracting activities, and seeking to do good and to do acts of mercy on the Lord's day. If we do that, I don't think we can go wrong on observing the Lord's Sabbath. We're going to talk about that more next week. I'll develop those further. But for now, let me leave you with God's promise for those who keep his Sabbath day holy. Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14. The Lord promises, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. That's the promise and that's the hope that we have held out to each one of us. If we do the Lord's will on his day, we get more delight for ourselves in the Lord. I'll explain that more next week. Let's pray together. Lord, there's nothing more that we want in the world than this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, and on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. Lord, your nearness is our good. And even as you've given us this promise, Lord, we do pray that you would enable us to have this greater joy, this richer, richer and fuller delight in you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace as we seek to honor you and walk according to your will on the day of the Lord. Lord, be with us for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, here a benediction from Jude. This is a good hope for us to remember as we think through obedience to the will of the Lord. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. 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 And may he have it all from your lives. Uh, Amen. May you go in peace.